0: Father in heaven, we come today and we confess that you are our God. No matter what we are going through in our lives, whether we are on a mountaintop or in a deep valley, you are still God, and we have reason to see you and to savor you and to praise your name today. So we pray that you would do that in each of our hearts, and I pray that you would also speak to us now through your word, give us the grace we need to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I have a seat. One of the saddest realities of human life under the curse in this broken world, is forgetting. As we get older, memories of events and people in our past fade or fade away. This happens to everyone, though some get particularly bitter doses of forgetfulness. For example, the actor Bruce Willis was recently diagnosed with an untreatable form of dementia. His family is heartbroken. The media calls it a tragic and deeply sad reality for Bruce. Now, Bruce isn't dead, though. So why is it so tragic and sad? Well, It's true it's sad. And it's because our memories are such a vital part of who we are. They are what we have left of our past... They shape us in the present in so many ways, and they give us direction for the future. In one of the most moving books I've read in years, Everything Sad Is Untrue, Daniel Nyeri writes of counting the memories counting the memories and he spends his entire book recounting and reliving various people and occasions from his childhood that he remembers a very dramatic childhood and all of these memories he's counting them for the sake of our present and for the sake of our future it is so crucial for us to remember And in our broken world, remembering is not easy. It's a battle we all must fight. Did you know that remembering is also crucial in our spiritual lives as well? So much of of God's word was written down in order to preserve the memories of what God has done. We are meant, as his people, to remember, to recall, to retell the works and the wonders of God. But also a a key central component of our worship, of our regular worship as the church, is remembering. We hear the familiar words each week in the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. Eugene Peterson has called communion the sacrament of nurture for Christians. And has said that from the earliest days of the church, the Lord's Supper has been the defining act of worship, the axis upon which all else turns. So, why is that? And how is the Lord's Supper such an important part of our worship? Well, if you will, please turn in a Bible with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. And here, in this passage, Jesus was rapidly approaching the end of his time on earth. Like the time till his death could be counted in hours, not days. It's also so happened to be the time of the Jews' celebration of Passover. And if you're there in Luke 22, in the very first verse, it says, "...now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover." And verse 7 continues, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They did as Jesus said, and then in verse 13, it says, They went and found it, just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover. 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this is when Jesus first introduced his followers to this practice that we know so well of the Lord's Supper, teaching and instructing them on how to practice it even after he was gone. Like you only do something in remembrance once it's in the past. And in that moment, Jesus was still physically with them, but he soon wasn't to be. It's almost like this is someone explaining their last will and testament to you. Like, when I'm gone, I want you to do this. Throughout our series on worship, I have tried to define worship as Coming us coming before God and responding to him, to who he is and to what he's done in order to glorify him. And practicing the Lord's Supper most certainly qualifies as this. We come before God's presence together as his people. We respond to his invitation, to his instructions, and most importantly, to what he's done for us. And we do all of this with the motive to remember him, to thank him, and to glorify him. I think Scripture actually lays out at least four ways that we should worship God around his table. The first is this, that we worship around the table as we remember Jesus' sacrifice. We worship around the table as we remember Jesus' sacrifice. And that's very easy to see, right? Eat this bread in remembrance of me, he said. Did likewise with the cup. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. What was it about Jesus that needed to be remembered? Well, lots of things, certainly. But there was one thing in particular that Jesus wanted memorialized here. That's his death. It's why he used bread and wine as symbols for his broken body and his shed blood. See, the cross was the central part of everything Jesus came to earth to do. It was like Christ was telling his disciples, listen, I've been with you for several years now, and you know a lot of the things that I've done for you, you're going to write it down so people can remember for years to come. Other things I've said and I've done, they're going to be forgotten by you, by history. But no matter what, make sure you don't forget this. What's going to happen to me over the next... 24 hours or so, what you're going to experience alongside of me is the most important and significant thing I will ever do for you. Like, you need to remember me, my body, my blood. Please don't ever forget it. Look at the actions that Jesus takes as he does this. In verse 19, it said, And he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. So he, he took, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave them. Uh, the Michael Reeves points out that these actions were basically like a microcosm of what he was doing in the grand scheme of the gospel. He had come down from heaven, taking a body as a man, and in that body, he lived a perfect life of giving thanks to God. He would then lay down that life, letting his body be broken on the cross, also so he could graciously and generously give himself to us. And so, as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we tangibly, tangibly remember, we even reenact Jesus and his gospel. The good news of of how Jesus gives himself to save us from our sin, from, from death, from hell. And if you're here and you haven't yet received him as your savior, I hope that this message today would make you aware of your need and drive you to accept his free gift of salvation. It's there for the taking because he has given himself. For us, In the Bible, there were many special physical places where God revealed himself or, or met with his people, worked in some mighty way, and his people often marked the spot after that by building an altar or a monument or maybe renaming the place. Theologians call this the sacralization of space. In other words, making a space sacred, which our culture does in our own way too, is, right? It's like we've got monuments, we've got plaques for famous places, or you could think of, of the crosses or even shrines on the sides of roads where people have died. R.C. Sproul has pointed out that not only is sacred space all over Scripture, but so is sacred time. For example, the Jews had a, a series of religious feasts that were celebrated every year. N- not to mention the Sabbath, of course, which was the most regular. In our day, we have holidays. When you think of the root of that word, holy days. It's sacred. The holidays on our calendar that that commemorate people or events from our own history. We got. Victoria Day and Canada Day and Colonel By Day and Thanksgiving and Remembrance Day. We also all celebrate birthdays or anniversaries because we want, to, we want to celebrate and remember the significance of those times or those people in our lives. The church has marked certain dates on the calendar throughout history as well. Like, we gather every week on the first day of the week to worship and in order to remember that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. We celebrate Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Christmas, sometimes more. Why? Because it's ingrained in our human nature to mark sacred time. I think Jesus clearly knew. This human need to remember and recollect significant moments. And so with communion, he marked a sacred time as a memorial for his people. Really, Jesus was taking an already sacred moment and redefining it and refocusing it. Remember, this happened during the Passover meal. The Feast of Unleavened Bread And in verse 15, he goes out of his way to emphasize that this is what's going on. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why was that significant? Well, if you know the story, this goes way back to when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. God promised to deliver them to freedom, to bring them into their own land of safety. But first, he humbled Pharaoh and the the false gods of Egypt, their, their pantheon of gods, through a series of plagues. Nine plagues had come and gone, and Pharaoh still refused to let God's people go. God said the tenth would be the worst of all, costing the lives of all the firstborn sons in Egypt. Meanwhile, he provided a way for his people to avoid this terrible plague themselves. They were to to kill a young, unblemished lamb for a special supper that they would celebrate that night. And they were to take some of the blood of that lamb and spread it on their doorposts. And this marked their house as a house under the Lord's favor and protection. And then as God that night was inflicting his judgment, he would pass over them, sparing them his wrath. And from then on, he instructed them to observe the Passover feast every year as a memorial day. Now, do you think, you suppose it's a coincidence that during this particular feast day, the feast that, that centered around the flesh of a sacrificial lamb being consumed along with unleavened bread and blood marking their deliverance from the wrath of God, Jesus, was, who had been hailed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, introduced his followers to a new way to celebrate the Passover. By consuming his flesh, celebrating his blood, that would save them. This definitely was not a coincidence. It was highly significant, massively meaningful, and absolutely audacious. For Jesus to redefine this sacred feast of God's and recenter it on himself, it would have been blasphemous if it wasn't true. But truly, he was the Lamb of God who was about to sacrifice himself. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 puts it plainly. says, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. He is our Passover Lamb. And so he was adding this new meaning and significance, really ultimate significance, to this ancient feast. And so now we eat and we drink to remember Christ and what God has done through him, through this greater Passover, this greater Exodus. Like in Christ, we are freed from slavery to, and bondage to our sin, to unrighteousness, to the devil. We are delivered out of the domain of darkness and brought into Christ's kingdom of light. And we're rescued from the much-deserved wrath of God because Christ died for us. His blood is essentially now spread over the doors of our lives. Over our hearts. This was a, a massive moment. like History deviated the week Jesus died. As he established what's called a new covenant. Did you notice that? In verse 20, where he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant covenant in my blood. and you, If you know the Bible, you know that God had established a number of covenants over the years to define his relationship with his people, with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. But now this new covenant in Christ would fulfill and supersede all of them. So as a church, we don't need actually to celebrate the Passover anymore because we have our Passover lamb. But we're still called to remember, which we do in this new ordinance of the Lord's Supper. How do we know that Jesus meant for this to be observed in perpetuity, to continue to be celebrated? It might not be clear in Luke. So for this, we're going to need to turn elsewhere. And so I invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11 with me. 1 Corinthians 11 is likely the most familiar passage on the Lord's Supper in the Bible, where Paul restates what Jesus did at his last supper. And when you get there, look in verse 23 with me. So this is clearly implied here that the early church continued to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He passed it on. He delivered it to them. It's not said how often they did this, but however often they did, they kept remembering and proclaiming Christ. Side note, notice here that it's his death that is still in focus. It's not his incarnation, his life, or even his resurrection. As important as those things are, his sacrifice takes center stage in the Lord's Supper. We proclaim his death. Thus, even though its roots go back to Passover, the Lord's Supper is a uniquely new covenant, post-crucifixion form of worship for the church to carry on. In it, we, we turn our flighty, distracted minds, again, to the all-important gospel of Christ. And again, repeatedly, very intentionally, thinking on and remembering him. All that said, however, I do believe the Lord's Supper is actually more than merely a memorial meal. In other words, it's meant to stir more than just our memories, but also our emotions. It's meant to, to spark a, a deep gratitude and, and joyful appreciation of Christ. It's really meant to be a, a regular experience of the grace of Christ for us. And so, we worship around the table as well in thankful celebration for Jesus' grace. We worship around the table in thankful celebration for Jesus' grace. Jesus himself even modeled this when he gave thanks as he broke the bread. Giving thanks is such a natural element of worshiping God, right? It's so natural, fitting here. Think of how the opposite of true worship, the root of sin described in Romans 1 was people not honoring God or giving thanks to God. The thanks that's rightfully his. Or positively, think of Psalm 103 where David sings, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Remembering is intertwined with gratitude. All his benefits really could be synonymous with grace. Right? Grace is, is shorthand for all the undeserved favor that we receive from God. And goodness, does the Lord's Supper ever express his grace to us. I said that this should be a thankful celebration because I think we should be happy about this. Right? Yes, yes. We should observe this with a soberness and a seriousness, as we're going to see in a minute. And in a sense, we should have a certain solemnness since we're remembering Christ's death, and that was pretty gruesome. Yet at the same time, Jesus didn't stay dead. And we shouldn't treat him like he's still dead. All the, and the grace that his broken body and shed blood secured for us is wonderful. It's breathtaking. And think of the, the Passover again. Right, right? The original Passover couldn't have been an overly joyous event. Because it was shrouded by the looming judgment of God against Egypt. Yet, in the years that followed post-deliverance, their deliverance was to be remembered with a feast, not a night of mourning, but a joyful, thankful celebration of God's salvation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we should share a certain festive quality among us, saying the day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. Reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren, the congregation receives the gift of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and receiving that, it receives forgiveness, new life, and salvation. It is given new fellowship with God and men. It's something to rejoice in. You're in 1 Corinthians 11 right now. Look back uh, one page, if that, to 1 Corinthians 10. And here... Paul is giving the Corinthian church a serious warning about not falling prey to the same fate that befell the Israelites in the wilderness after the Exodus. It's like, and he's basically saying just because they shared the same spiritual bread didn't mean that they were safe from apostasy. By the way, apostasy literally refers to a letting go of or forgetting what was once held dear. And remembering is so crucial. But in the middle of this warning that he's giving them, Paul just drops in this juicy morsel about the nature of communion. Look at verse 14. He says, "'Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry.'" So this is in context of properly worshiping God, not worshiping idols. "'Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless.'" Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't not a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I'm not going to go into all the details here, but not only does communion bind us together and in one body, right? Letting us experience the grace of the church, the people of God, but also the Lord's Supper, we, in the Lord's Supper, we somehow participate in the body and blood of Christ. Now, this does not mean, as some churches have mistakenly believed, that the little wafers of bread or the little sips of juice are the actual physical body and blood of Christ. Neither do they mystically become the body and blood as we consume them. There are whole church-splitting historic controversies that hinge on that subject. I don't want to drag you into the weeds of that today. I'll just say these things. First of all, we are saved by the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He never needs to die again. And to claim otherwise is an anti-biblical, really anti-gospel heresy. So don't believe anyone who says that in communion, Jesus is sacrificed again. It's not what's happening. Second, nearly all Christians believe that Christ is present with us during the Lord's Supper. We may disagree on the exact nature of that presence, and that's okay. But I think that those who say, and this is often us Baptists, who say that communion is remembering and nothing more, go too far. Because in the Lord's Supper, we we do meet with the Lord. We participate in our union with him. Put it simply, we experience the grace of God in various ways through the table. What grace, you ask? Well, I already mentioned our union with Christ, union with the church. Pastor Harold Sankbeel adds In Christ's Holy Supper, Christians are joined not just to Him, but to each other as well in intimate union and communion. In this eating and drinking, they become what they eat. Dining on the body of Christ, they are one body in him. The Lord's Supper is a great antidote to the toxic individualism of our age. Sharing in this sacramental mystery, these many individuals become one body, bearing each other's burdens and heartaches and multiplying each other's joys. It's hard to extol the gifts of the Lord's Supper enough. It is an inexhaustible source of healing and strength. For all the people of God. Another one, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is certainly a grace of God. So just as as Christ's blood provides the actual forgiveness of sins, drinking of the cup reminds us of that forgiveness. And as we often examine our hearts and confess our sins during communion, we get to experience that forgiveness of sins once again and again and again. The Lord's Supper contains what some have called the medicine of heaven. In John 6, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, I think we see some further aspects of God's grace. So keep your place in 1 Corinthians. We're going to go back there. But you can turn over to John 6. I won't read the whole passage. It's a long one. We're going to jump in mid-discussion. Okay? But Jesus says this, and we're going to start in verse 32. John 6, 32. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here Jesus is using this familiar imagery of bread to claim that that he is the very source of life and satisfaction in life. Like the bread of life itself. Bread which satisfies, by the way, both spiritual hunger, and spiritual thirst. So, do you want true, lasting satisfaction in life? You need Jesus. Again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. However, besides just mentioning bread, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, further down, verse 48, Jesus continues, repeats himself, "'I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died.'" This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, So now we got this direct parallel to the Lord's Supper. Jesus is saying that he is going to give his life just like he would give this bread and continues, verse 52, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now, there's a lot of confusing things in that passage. We're not going to get into them all today. But don't go thinking that... Taking communion is what saves us. No. Faith in Jesus, believing in him, is the feeding on his body and blood that he's talking about here. But just like the people then, we asked, well, how is he going to give himself to us to eat? And the answer, just like it was at the Lord's Last Supper, was the cross. He would give his life up. We now take communion to celebrate the cross and to eat and drink of him. We abide in Christ in that moment. We get a taste of satisfaction in him. And really, when, we are, when we're given the grace of God, we aren't just given God's stuff. We're given God himself and all the blessings that flow outward from him. The Lord's Supper is is one way to taste and see his goodness and his grace. So so stop snacking and sipping from the world's pantries or cisterns. Run to the bread of life today. Like you, you my friend... (laughs) You, undeserving, lifelong sinner who has fallen so short of God's glory. You, stumbling saint who feel that God should have given up on you a long time ago. You are invited to the table of the king. to The supper of the lamb. Come, taste of him. Eat, drink, be merry in Him. Be eternally satisfied. Are you thankful for this? If so, take these opportunities weekly to express your thanksgiving to Him, your gratitude. We worship around the table in thankful celebration of Jesus' grace. And yet, be careful. Be careful. Because this is a very serious activity. Joyful and celebratory, yes, yet deadly serious. See, we worship around the table as well in sober discernment within Jesus' church. We worship around the table in sober discernment within Jesus' church. In 1 Corinthians 10, flip back there, we read these sobering words in verse 21. He says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So so cleanse your heart, right? Cast away your idols. Get rid of any rival loves to the Lord because God is a jealous God for our affections. He rightly deserves every drop of our worship. So if we seek to to worship him while our hearts are harboring idolatry, like we might as well worship demons. So if we partake of the table of the Lord, yet he doesn't have our heart, watch out. And that's the context that shapes what comes up later in chapter 11. You can read of it in verses 17 to 22. I'll just sum it up for you, that the early church often shared a whole meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. It wasn't the supper itself, but they did it alongside of it. But in Corinth, this feast apparently devolved into gluttony and selfishness. They they degraded the sanctity of the supper by turning it into this gluttonous potluck, and that's why Paul reminds them of the basics in verses 23 to 26, which we already read. For this reason, I, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. In verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lays out the basics. And then he concludes in verse 27 and on. You can read this. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner... But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now this tells us that there is a right way and a wrong way to take communion, right? And that if we participate in the wrong way, The consequences can be really scary. We wonder, can we really get sick or die over this? Now, it would be super hard for us to diagnose whenever that might happen. But yes, unrepentant sin carries consequences, and some of those do play out physically. Physically. The main question I think we have to answer here is is what is eating or drinking in an unworthy manner? So we can avoid it, right? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I think the answer comes through the next several verses. Verse 28 says, Instead of eating unworthily, we're to examine ourselves and so eat and drink. So, in other words, partaking the wrong way would be to not examine ourselves, to just be frivolous about it, thoughtless. Verse 29 adds that eating unworthily is to eat and drink without discerning the body. So there's a discernment here, to to eat in the right way is to have a discernment, to do so knowledgeably, To, to know that your heart is right with the Lord, with other believers, to think on His body and His body. Speaking of, verse 33 implies that we should be united in community and fellowship as we do this. And that goes back to Paul's original complaints in verses 17 to 22. People were divided from each other, only looking after themselves. One scholar concludes that an unworthy manner is any manner, really, that is not consistent with the significance of Christ's death. Any manner that is not consistent with the significance of Christ's death. Now... On our own, no one is worthy to handle holy things, to commune with the Lord. We're unworthy, and we're coming to Christ for that very reason. We need him. But if we come to the Lord's Supper with frivolousness, divisiveness, selfishness, or hypocrisy, we expose ourselves to the very real judgment of God. This is why, when we take the Lord's Supper, we'll often encourage you to examine yourself, examine your heart for any unconfessed sin, for any unreconciled relationships with others. This is why, also, you'll always hear us say something like, this table is open to all true believers, but if Jesus is not your Savior, we urge you to just observe and not partake. We don't do that to just arrogantly exclude everyone, anyone from the fun. We do it to lovingly protect you from potentially dreadful consequences. If you're in doubt, refrain. It's not worth the risk. God will not be mocked. That said, there is an abundance of mercy available to you. Even you. This meal testifies to that reality. (laughs) That blood has been shed. That forgiveness is freely available. Just think of some sobering facts of the first Lord's Supper. Judas was among the participants. So was Peter, along with all the other disciples, about to deny or abandon Jesus at his hour of greatest need. What this tells me is that perfection is not a requirement at the table. Jesus told his deeply flawed disciples, take, eat, eat, Drink, all of you. Now, while Judas went on to die soon, the other disciples lived on under God's mercy, which tells me that future sins also don't disqualify you from the Lord's table. If you want to be really sobered, Check out what happens right after he says all of that in Luke 22. The disciples just break into a quarrel about who is the greatest. Right then. So don't treat this lightly. Examine yourself in light of the cross and in the midst of your community. But don't let, let that prevent you from coming and freely tasting of God's mercy. If you're in good standing with God and with man, thanks to Jesus, then praise the Lord. And come eat and drink of God's forgiveness and reconciliation. It's there for the taking. Now, as we talk about taking communion within the church, a host of practical questions arise like, should the table be open to people from other churches? to unbaptized people? Should believing children be allowed to take the Lord's Supper? I personally believe so. Or maybe why as, why do we as a church do it weekly now? We didn't always do it that way. Or why are we still using these sometimes annoying little prepackaged kits? For that matter, why is this a, a minuscule snack and not a full meal? Or should we really be substituting grape juice for wine? <laughs> now, I don't have the time to answer all those questions in this sermon. And I don't think that we even need to come to all the same conclusions on these things. They're often a matter of wisdom and conscience more than command. But I'd be happy to discuss any of these questions. If they're burning you up, you want to talk about them, I'd be happy to do that. There is a final point that it's much more important than I get to before we end. And that is to point you to the end. See, in the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back to the cross, and we look around in celebration and discernment, but we also look forward to what Christ has yet to do. Come again. And the point is that we worship around the table as we anticipate Jesus' return. As we anticipate Jesus' return to reign over us A common feature in every account of the Lord's Supper in scripture is the mentioning of Jesus' return that he's going to come back. In Luke we saw he said for I tell you I will not eat of it eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. From now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And of course 1 Corinthians 11:26 says for as often as you eat and br- eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death Until he comes. Until when? Until he comes. See, the last supper of Jesus on earth won't really be his last. It's just his last for now. In Revelation 19, John prophesies about the coming day when both the Passover and the Lord's Supper will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. And he says this in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to Clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel then told him, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is also steeped in worship, right? What does John do after this? He's so overwhelmed that he falls to the ground to worship the angel. The angel rebukes him and gives him the command, No, 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 no. Worship God. Worship God. As we come to the table and we remember Christ dying for us, let us also anticipate his return for us. There is so much more to come. A great, unimaginable celebration A feast to end all feasts with no more sin or division or death complicating the picture. That'll all be banished. And the Lord's Supper points us ahead to that coming day. Until then, we worship and we proclaim Christ's death awaiting our final deliverance. I like the picture in Exodus 12 right after Moses gave the people all the instructions about the Passover, God's work had already obviously begun in incredible ways. They had God's promise to save them, but they hadn't been delivered yet. So in this tension there, what would they do? They would take their stand under the blood of the Lamb and let God go to war to fight for them and deliver them securing their freedom. And Exodus 12:27 describes their exact response. Said, "And the people bowed their heads and worshiped." So as they anticipated the full deliverance of the Lord, they worshiped. And so must we. This meal anchors us to truth and reality as believers to the past in the present and to the future. Looking to the past, we gratefully remember Christ and his sacrifice. Dwelling in the present, we soberly celebrate Christ and his grace. And looking to the future, we anxiously anticipate Christ and his return. As Wyatt Graham says, this memory of ours brings together in mind past, present, and future. In a moment of time, our mind stands outside of regular time. Time gets reordered with Christ at the center. Christ is the center of time at the Lord's Supper. Call it the Lord's Supper for a reason. It's his table not ours. We're just thrilled to be invited to join him there. So may we give him the praise and thanks and the remembering that he is due until he comes again. I'll invite the worship team up this time, and it's only fitting to end today by taking the Lord's Supper together now. So, you haven't, grab a cup, if you're going to participate. I don't need to say much more to you today, you know exactly what we're doing now. You've been invited, you've been warned, and I hope you've been encouraged. So right now I want you to just take a minute examine your hearts, as we've been talking about. As we do that, the the team is going to play and sing a song that you don't need to join in on. You likely don't know it, but the words will be there for you to meditate on. It's really just,